Well, it's great to be uh, with you this afternoon. Let's, uh, let's bow, shall we, just for a moment. And we're going to pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for your divinely inspired and divinely given word. We thank you that in its rich entirety, it is a love letter from you to our world. We thank you that in it you reveal yourself to us and you show us how to be saved and right with you. We thank you for these precious moments when we can gather around it. And we pray now that you would be with us as you have promised to be by your spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Sunday by Sunday, we are, as you know, continuing to work through the Gospel of Matthew. Last time I preached in, in, a, in our schedule, uh, we were looking at the brutal murder of John the Baptist. And uh, it just so happens today, with the way our preaching schedule is formed, that I have another difficult passage to unpack with you, which is in some ways just as brutal, but in a different way. Um, someone was asking me the other day, who plans your preaching schedule? And I said, well, I do. <laughs> so it's my own fault, isn't it? Um, but here in this passage that Jolene helpfully read to us, we meet a desperate woman. She comes to Jesus, but Jesus appears to ignore her and then refuse her request twice. But worse still, on the surface, Jesus seems to refuse her request based on her ethnicity. So I, I think it's fair to say that this passage on the surface will no doubt appear shocking to us. We're all aware of situations here at home and in the world, both now and in even in the recent history, where individual people and groups of people have been cruelly treated purely on the base of their racial identity. It's not altogether surprising that one commentator I came across this week describes this encounter here in Matthew as brutal, offensive, the worst kind of chauvinism, incredible insolence, atrocious. I hope that's not where we land. But at first glance, it's not, it's not totally um, hard to see, is it? How th this passage does seem very hard. One of, the, one of the first things that has struck me this week as I've been preparing uh, to preach today is the truthfulness, though, of this strange account. What I mean by that is that it's hard to see why Matthew would have included such a strange incident if it hadn't actually happened. What on earth, why, why, why on earth would he make something like this up? And what, what on earth would he be trying to achieve by doing that? You, you may know that in the first century, there was enormous conflict between Jews and non-Jews, uh, known as Gentiles. 
And despite our tragic modern experience of iron curtains, ethnic cleansing, racial barriers, some historians believe that in the history of mankind there has never been a greater divide, a greater conflict, more exclusive and unrelenting than that which existed between Jews and Gentiles. But if Matthew was trying to speak into that issue in the first century, what would be his point? If he's writing to Jews who have become Christians to try and encourage them to welcome Gentiles, why on earth would he choose to portray Jesus here as so reluctant, bordering on rude with this lady who comes to him? And yet Jesus does ultimately heal the woman's daughter. The the weirdness or the strangeness of this encounter lies in the fact that Jesus so strongly initially refuses to help and then later wonderfully does help. So our question surely has to be, what, what is it about this account that actually happened that became so precious to the early followers of Jesus that Matthew would include it as a crucial component of his gospel biography of Jesus? What is Matthew intending us to see in this surprising encounter? Let's try and find out, shall we? It would be great if if you've got a Bible open or on your phone, it would be great if you could follow uh, with me the the text here because what what we're going to do is try and walk through it very simply and I want to try and highlight for us three distinct surprises. So, surprise number one. I've entitled this, An Outsider Tries to Get In. Now, notice with me, the first thing that Matthew tells us here in verse 21 is that Jesus withdraws. This, uh, Matthew tells us that this happens a few times in Jesus' ministry, um, particularly at times when conflict is escalating. Jesus withdraws. In the first verse of the previous chapter, chapter 15, you'll see there that Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So, I haven't got a map, but if this, imagine, if this was like the UK, Jesus would be in Yorkshire. And the senior religious officials would come up the M1 from London, the capital, to Yorkshire, and they're not friendly, They're coming to Yorkshire to confront him. And Jesus responds to them in chapter 15. And then we're told now that Jesus withdraws and he heads way further north. So in our our analogy, he goes to Scotland. That's the kind of analogy just to get the sense of it. When Matthew mentions Tyre and Sidon here in verse 21, he's telling us that Jesus has left his home territory and gone far north. One day, Jesus will come back south and go to Jerusalem, and he'll face these enemies again. But it isn't time yet. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus withdraws. As they go, Matthew's text here, in verse 22, literally says, but look, 
a Canaanite woman came to him. I don't know why the NIV seems to miss all these little words. There's a little word in there that means, behold. Maybe they don't want to sound like it's old English or something. But Matthew actually says, but look, what Matthew's doing is conveying a sense of surprise. As he's gone north, a lady in that place comes out to him. Here's something you don't see every day, is the sense of what Matthew's trying to convey. And we mustn't miss what Matthew is doing here with the Canaanite label. This story also appears in Mark's Gospel. And Mark simply identifies this woman by where she lives now. He he calls her the Syrophoenician woman. That's current geography. But Matthew, well, I suppose if we were following our Scottish analogy, Mark would say she was Glaswegian. You know, we know where she's from now. And to follow that analogy, Matthew here, instead of telling us where she currently lives, he, he doesn't invoke geography, he invokes history. And, he, and he, it would be like referring to someone from Sheffield as an Anglo-Saxon. That's too neutral, though. Um, maybe, if, uh, with apologies to Ewan, it would be like an English person calling a Scottish person jock. That is invoking something historical. Or with even more apologies to Tom and Claire, it would be like one of us calling an Australian an ex-convict. There's a history here. So it's not current geography. He's drawing attention to historic negative roots. She's a Canaanite. It's It's not a rude derogatory term in and of itself, But the truth is that the Canaanites had been enemies of Israel for thousands of years. He could have said where she was from, but he refers to her deliberately as a Canaanite to emphasize the divisive nature of these relationships. Jesus is in a foreign place. And I think a Jew reading this would prick up their ears immediately. We might miss this. For thousands of years, the Canaanites have been our enemies. They're from bad stock, they never change, they're all the same, and they're not one of us. That's how a Jew would respond to this description. So the first surprise here is that as Jesus comes north to get away from it all, this foreign, pagan, outsider woman sees her chance and comes directly to Jesus. Even more surprising, though, is what she says to him. Look with me at verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. That is about the most Jewish thing a person could have said to Jesus. And she's not a Jew. The son of David is a biblical title for the Jewish Messiah. David was one of their greatest kings. And in the Old Testament, God had promised his people that one day a descendant of David, a son of David, a greater person than David ever was would come and reign on David's throne and restore them 
The Jewish nation pinned their nationalistic, eager hopes on this mysterious figure, the son of David. Who told her this? I have no idea. I have no idea. Where, where did she learn about the son of David? Somehow, this pagan woman, way outside of Israel, has heard of this. And in her heart, she senses that Jesus is the one who was promised. And she comes out to him. In one way, her faith is tiny, but it's not random blind faith. She isn't coming out to Jesus here as if he was some kind of traveling magician, superstitiously hoping for the best. This woman, for sure, doesn't know everything. But she's heard just a tiny fraction of God's word. And it's enough to compel her to come to Jesus, to confess Jesus as Lord, and to plead for his compassion to be shown. You can see there in verse 22 that the crisis, the particular crisis for this woman is her daughter. But Matthew, it seems like the way Matthew writes this, that that's kind of somehow in the background. The key issue here is this woman, a rank outsider, coming desperately, but not blindly, confessing Jesus and asking for his help. I just want to pause here for a moment and highlight an obvious comparison that Matthew is making here. If you've been following our studies in this gospel, you will know that at the very end of chapter 13, Jesus comes home to the place where he's grown up and his neighbours are offended by him. And Matthew tells us that Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. If we go back to chapter 11, it's even more striking to hear Jesus compare his home region with that, with that of Tyre and Sidon, where the pagans lived. And he says to his home, the, the people in his homeland, he said, if the people in Tyre and Sidon had seen what you've seen, they would have repented years ago. It's like Jesus saying to them, what's the matter with you? The first great surprise here then is that those who were near, who had all the information at their fingertips, those who had all the centuries-old promises of a Father God to them specifically, and who should have shouted for joy when Jesus appeared, those who were ethnically on the inside with all the right historical and religious credentials, turned out to be blind. And yet here is this pagan woman who knows a tiny fraction of what they know. And it's enough to compel her 
to come to Jesus, her faith in Jesus isn't something just in her head, it's in her heart and it causes her to run to him and plead for his kindness to fall on her. This woman is saying to Jesus, I know that you're the one who was promised. Please help me. Well, that's surprise number one. Surprise number two. I don't know if these surprises escalate (laughs) and get more surprising. Surprise number two, the door was shut. Here's the second great surprise. After all this encouraging, promising, brilliant beginning, it seems like the door is cruelly slammed in this woman's poor face. Now, the, the bulk of this passage from this point on is, is the dialogue that is exchanged back and forth. And I couldn't help thinking as I was preparing, I was wondering how to break this up, and I couldn't help be thinking that this is like, it's like a rally in a tennis match. We, we were playing tennis recently in Clifton Park, you can do that now. And... Um, it's as if this woman is having a practice rally with Roger Federer or someone and, and she serves and the return just comes like flying back at a million miles an hour and she barely manages to get it back over the net and then a towering smash comes down and she runs to the side of the court and fumbles to just get a racket on it. It's almost like she's on the baseline being thrashed. <laughs> poof, poof, and she just about gets it every time. She just about gets the ball back. During this whole point, she barely manages to stay in the rally. And yet by the end, the crowd goes wild as she wins the point. We'll get to that. Let's trace how this rally plays out then. As she comes to Jesus, the first obstacle, in a sense, is the stony silence of Jesus. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. She cries out and nothing happens. Does God not invite us everywhere in the Bible to come to him with our need? What on earth is going on here? Is Matthew highlighting somehow the seriousness of what this woman as an outsider is actually asking for? Jesus did not answer a word. Have you ever prayed and felt like that? The woman's response was not to give up and go away but to cry out over and over all the louder the second obstacle that she experiences I've I've called this exasperation I'm talking here about the disciples now look with me again at verse 23 Jesus didn't answer words so his disciples came to him and urged him send her away for she keeps crying out after us the disciples get involved 
with their usual heavy-handedness, not because they have any compassion for this dear lady, but because they just can't stand the persistent noise. On another occasion, you'll know that the disciples tried to stop parents bringing their children to Jesus. He was incandescent. What are you doing? He was furious. Here, they stop this foreign lady coming to Jesus. You can almost imagine them saying, lady, would you just do one and get lost? We, we, we came here to get some peace. And she's going on and on and on. To them, this woman was a pain. And their irritation was another barrier to this lady. Imagine being on the receiving end of that. So the disciples come to Jesus and they, in, in their turn, plead with him. In verse 23, send her away, they urged him. Send her away. It's a little bit ambiguous, that. That could mean, Jesus, please tell her to do one. Or it could mean, Jesus, will you just give her what she's asking for so she'll leave us alone? And it's a bit ambiguous. I, personally, I think because of what Jesus says next, it sounds to me like they're asking Jesus to heal the lady just to get her off their backs. Because Jesus seems to answer with a kind of no, we'll get to that. It, so the, the striking thing here for the disciples is their confidence in Jesus' ability to do the healing is high. Their irritation threshold is very low. <laughs> Isn't, aren't the scriptures honest in the way they betray the disciples? Their faith is real, but their impatience is also real. It's very honest, isn't it? The third obstacle that the lady faces here is in verse 24. I've called this focus. Let me just unpack this. Jesus answered. It's not clear whether he answered the disciples or whether the lady could hear what Jesus says to the disciples. But he answered, "I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew gives us a sense here of Jesus' self-conscious awareness at this point of his mission. I was sent, sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying what, what he is doing is the job he has been given by his father, Jesus is not refusing the woman here based on some kind of prejudice, but out of the principle that he has been sent, first of all, to his own family, the Israelite nation, the Jewish people, the people of God. The interesting thing about Matthew is that Matthew knows, and he's a Jewish man, by the way, he knows where this gospel is going to end. He's, he's writing it. He, he, when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, we hear Matthew tell us that Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world. So Matthew knows that Jesus' mission will be ultimately a global mission. But at this point here, Jesus has a clear focus that is totally true but temporary. 
This encounter, in a way, is a stepping stone on the journey from the promises made in the Old Testament to the Jewish nation and to those promises that then overflow to the whole world in Christ. There are some things in Jesus' words here that we could easily miss. I've called it focus, but we could have called this faithfulness, or we could have called it determination. God had made promises to his beloved people down the centuries, and now God is fulfilling them in the person of Jesus. No one could ever accuse God of not keeping his promises to his own people. And there is a sense that if if Jesus and his disciples had immediately launched a mission to the whole world and simply bypassed the promises that he'd made to his people in the Old Testament, it would have made God out to be a liar. There's an order in God's plan. But as we hear Jesus say these words, don't forget, he's up in Scotland now, (laughs) or... No, but you know what I mean. He's he's far north. He's away from home. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, think about what we've seen so far in Matthew. Even as Jesus says these very words, he's on foreign soil because of hostility. Jesus has faced apathy, unbelief, the, the hostile opposition of religious leaders. And yet his focus here is still burning bright I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel and despite all the difficulties I will go and I will finish the task that my father has given me there's something in this language of of determined passionate faithful love for his people so alongside this loving determination of Jesus what we're also seeing is human blindness he came to his own family determinedly and they rejected him and this hostility in the end did not just take him to the very far north it took him far 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 further still even to the cross and to death it isn't actually until after easter that we begin to see that in fact we are all outsiders and that the whole world both jews and gentiles Jews who were near and Gentiles who were miles away, we all actually need the same Saviour who can take away our sin and unbelief and bring us together, united to God. This woman is surely amazing though, because somehow as an outsider, She's asking Jesus now for the blessings that would only come after Easter, before Easter's even happened. Jesus is saying, I can't help you yet. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And we might think she'd give up at this point, but there's more. She still stays in the rally. Look with me at verse 25. 
the woman came and knelt, knelt before him. And she boils down and reduces her original request to three words here. Lord, help me, she said. She's heard the logic and the clarity of Jesus' focus. And she comes and kneels. Lord, help me. Jesus at first expands on his earlier statement. He seems to add insult to injury by telling a brief little parable in verse 26. Sometimes Jews did call Gentiles dogs. It was a very big insult. It's not our place to go into all that now, but I, I don't think, I'm not sure at all that Jesus is being insulting here. Some commentators take that view. The word used for dog here is, is a dog, is, is it a, like a pet. Some, some of you know that we've just got a little um, chocolate brown cockapoo puppy called Frodo, if you didn't know. Some of you have met him and you know that he's very cute. He's, he's, yeah, he's, he's a little monkey as well, but he is very cute. The word Jesus uses for dog here is the word you would use for that kind of pet dog. And the reference here to children and tables, there's a, this is a domestic scene, not a rabid, feral dog off in the wild woods somewhere. What Jesus says, if I, if I can take the liberty of paraphrasing here, verse 26, Jesus is saying, it's not right to give the children's tea to Frodo. Frodo does need feeding, and we do kind of love him too. But we don't, the kids get their tea first. We don't give the kids tea to Frodo and the kids are going, what? That Jesus here is not insulting the woman. He, he's, he's expanding on the focus by, he, he's given her a sense of priority here. You, you, you feed the children first and then the pets. The thing is, we, we can't tell as we read this, what expression Jesus has on his face, can we? Matthew doesn't tell us that, and we, we weren't there, we don't know. And there's a world of difference, isn't there, between a stern, closed face and a twinkle in the eye, even a hint of a smile. Jesus seems to leave the door open, that although there is a priority and an order here, the dogs are not going to starve. And so we come to surprise number three. And I've just entitled this, The Door Had Been Open All Along. First of all, in verse 27, the woman gives the most incredible reply. She, she simply says, Yes, Lord. By the way, did you notice that every time this lady speaks to Jesus, she addresses him as Lord? 
there's something quite incredible in that on its own. But here in verse 27, she agrees with Jesus. She seems to agree with his logic. She doesn't argue that her desperate need makes her some kind of exception. Or that as an outsider, she actually does have the right to Israel's covenant promises. She doesn't plead or argue that God's ways are somehow unfair or argue that she's entitled to something. But she does see that if for now she can't actually sit at the table, Jesus can legitimately at least let her receive some crumbs. It's un- it, what an unbelievable response that this lady gives to Jesus. Humble, submissive, and yet bold and confident. And now finally we see that the door has actually been open all the way along. If this dialogue was a tennis match, as we said, it's only when you get to the end that you realise that Jesus wasn't trying to crush her, but to coach her. This, this has been a coaching session. All of this apparently brutal exchange has been designed to draw out her faith. And so as she replies, finally, Jesus says, and again, the NIV misses a word out. In this literally, Jesus literally answered, oh, woman. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of emotional. Oh, woman, you have great faith. Jesus has already rebuked his own disciples. O ye of little faith. Jesus has already pointed out the absence of faith in the neighbourhood where he grew up from his fellow Jews. And this pagan lady, far, far away, moves Jesus deeply. And he gives her the most incredible commendation. Oh, woman, your faith is huge what a what a commendation from christ to hear we've already said that matthew doesn't seem to put the healing front and center here the main point is the outsider against all the obstacles finding grace but still jesus says your request is granted literally it will be to you just as you have asked. And the daughter, who isn't even present, is healed by Jesus at a distance. Why does Matthew include this slightly strange encounter? Why is it precious? I think one reason is that Matthew is highlighting for us that this is a stepping stone, but he's highlighting for us here that even now the gospel door is opening already to Gentiles. But here's the thing. For Gentiles to get in, they don't have to become ethnic Jews. What they need is faith 
in the Lord Jesus. The way in from the outside to knowing God and being right with him is not based on our racial or ethnic identity. It isn't based on our social status or our gender. Both those who are near and those who are far away all need to come in the same way by faith, believing in Jesus. And as we close them, there's so much here for us to learn about the nature of true faith. When we come to Jesus, we don't come with a random, blind, superstitious faith. Like this lady, we come to him because we've heard something about him in the word that God has given to us about him. And having heard, like here, we're, we're compelled to come and entrust ourselves to him. And when we come, we don't plead something in us. We don't come to Jesus and say, you have to help me because I'm this or that or the other. In the end, we're all actually outsiders. And the only way for us to come is for us to acknowledge our need and to plead for his kindness, which he has vast amounts of. Our faith is not based on what we are like or what we do, but on what he is like and what he does. And when we come, we don't come telling Jesus that he has to do things on our terms. We come to him submitting to him, as this lady did, as Lord and King. We don't come to Jesus to boss him around. We come submitting to his divine and superior, compassionate wisdom. And when we come, we don't just come hoping for the best. We come to the one who loves his people with the most ferocious, determined, passionate, surging love. A love that caused the Father to send him to us in our brokenness. A love that compels Jesus to carry our burdens. A love so infinitely great that it took him even to the cross where he made atonement for our sins so that we could forever know the smile of God and the security of his everlasting peace. I haven't quite finished and when we come we don't give up at the first hurdle true faith clings to the goodness of God and it trusts that this God will fulfill every single one of the promises that he's made and so somehow true faith, while in no way arrogant, yet it will not take no for an answer.
friends, this pagan woman, rank outsider, somehow knew that Jesus is the king who is kind. And like old Jacob, who wrestled with God in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, way back at the beginning, she would not let him go. And we find that Jesus was deeply and intensely delighted to be found by her submissive and yet tenacious faith. Let's uh, pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your challenging word. We, Lord, this passage is very strange, we, but we thank you that you've given it to us in your word and we thank you for what it shows us of Jesus. We thank you for what it teaches us about the nature of faith. Would you help us to be men and women and boys and girls of faith? Help us to go to him and to entrust our souls to him who loved us, who loves us even now. Lord, we pray in his good and powerful and strong name. Amen.